Welcome to Love the System, the integral stages interview series devoted to what we call the lower right quadrant. Politics, economics, social justice, algorithms, computation, protocols, processes, incentives, and the general interbehavioral terrain of unfolding objective plural dynamics. What are the systemic correlates of higher stages of personal development and deeper modes of intersubjective engagement? Let's find out. Joining us today is progressive activist and scholar Andres Bernal to discuss his work and vision in general and the principles of modern monetary theory in particular. Hi, Andres. Hi, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I am, you know, aware of some of the general contours of modern monetary theory, but I haven't taken a deep dive into it. I would love to know it well enough to have an authentic personal impression of it one way or another. When did you become aware of the MMT concept and what was it that attracted you to it? Great. That's, that's a fantastic question. I actually um, entered the modern monetary theory space in these two phases. The first one was in uh, September 2014 at a conference called Rethinking Economics. And it was organized um, from a heterodox economics perspective. So it's, it was many different traditions all challenging the orthodoxy in economics. Um, and I remember at this conference, one of the organizations that was helping organize it was called the Modern Money Network and uh, MMT or MMN. And they were talking about MMT. And just from the get go, I was my curiosity was piqued. And then I got busy and caught up with things and I never looked into it uh, from then on until 2017. And that was because after the election of Donald Trump, I was very worried about the future of things um, and some of the other um, elections, such as in Brazil with Jair Bolsonaro and, and um, events that I perceived as indicating a turn towards um, kind of right wing uh, tendencies around the world. And I felt like uh, progressive spaces, which is the spaces that I'm in, were not articulating a an adequate macroeconomic analysis and perspective through which to um, develop their policies. And I remembered, oh yeah, there was that MMT thing that sounded kind of interesting. Uh, so I, I looked into it and, uh, and then the more I looked into it, the more it kind of spoke to me and resonated and clicked. And it really felt like, you know, I, I kept telling myself over the years, one of these days, I'm gonna check this out again. And it kind of, I kind of had one of those like moments of synchronicity when I was like, okay, yeah, I, I, this, this was supposed to happen. And so pr prior to that, I had been studying um, what my, my doctorate uh, is in public, is in public policy that, that I'm still uh, kind of towards the end of finishing that up. And I had been engaging with economics from the perspective of economic sociology, uh, meaning rather than accepting that there are just economic laws that are just outside and beyond of politics or, or, or social relations or social dynamics. Um, they're, you know, they're akin to the laws of physics or Newtonian physics or whatnot. Economic sociology is really about embedding economic institutions within the social and within the political. So uh, as soon as I started to learn about MMT, it all started to click um, because of this background I already had because of MMT's integration of uh, law, anthropology, 
finance, accounting, and economics into its explanatory framework. So that's kind of the reason why it spoke to me uh, the most. Um, also, the scholars who, who uh, were and still are advocating for MMT um, were very much developing an agenda for what was at the time called a new New Deal. And, um, and, and that much of that work has now turned into the advocacy for a Green New Deal. So do you think that MMT is sort of like the, the economic emergent from a new kind of society that's being built on top of or after the modern type of society? I think that uh, as a framework, it allows us to develop that work to absolutely build that, that emerging society. I think a lot of the questions and the puzzles that um, this emerging society and kind of order that's yearning to become is presenting us. Um, MMT allows us to um, accelerate that a lot more than otherwise. There's something polarizing about it. Like I know you've worked with AOC and it's, yes. me, it's polarizing in a similar way. Right. There's a number of people who look at this and go, wow, this is an essential part of an urgently needed socioeconomic upgrade. And then there's a bunch of other people who may or may not know very much about it, who think, whoa, this sounds dangerous and risky and opposed to everything I think I understand about economics. So why is it not dumb and why should I not be afraid of such a experimental implementation of a radically unproven idea? Yeah, great question as well. You know, I, and what's interesting is that there are some of the, the folks most triggered and upset by, by economics um, go across ideology as well. And we've, we've been developing kind of a, a theory for explaining why that is. And, and much of that work, you know, goes back to emphasizing the way the modern world and even much of the postmodern world um, hinges on many of the implicit assumptions about modernity and, uh, you know, kind of the, 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 the society we've had since the 17th, you know, 16th, 17th century that set the groundwork for everything that we have now. And um, much of those assumptions uh, are the foundation for mainstream economics. Um, my internet's a little unstable, so hopefully you heard me there. But um, okay, so the, the reason why I think MMT as a framework is so important is because essentially orthodox and conventional economics starts with this idea that was established during the writings of people like John Locke and, and some of the other social contract theorists. So many of these folks developed a, a theory uh, to explain a political economy to explain society that basically says there is the state of nature and it's out and it's just out there and we emerge as individuals and we encounter the state of nature and then we encounter one another and from these encounters we started to trade and um, started to um, you know in, uh, communicate with one another and form these societies based on these micro foundations of exchange and trade and modern states and governments 
came into being when people decided it's better for all of us if we all agree to have some kind of rules. And that is kind of the secondary step, right? Um, the first one being small levels of trade. And so MMT's influence through certain anthropological perspectives ultimately says there's no evidence whatsoever in history that this is the foundation of civilization or of society. Trade and barter is not the origins of econ economies, and it's not the origins of nation states. Um, and in the same story, money, and this is kind of where the MMT part comes into play, uh, in this conventional story, money is an outgrowth of barter and exchange. And, you know, people are trading, and then sometimes there's a problem called the, the double coincidence of wants, where not, you know, you might, you might have something that somebody else doesn't want to trade you with. And so people decide we got money and it could act as this all-encompassing commodity to trade things with. And that's kind of the origin of money. And so MMT challenges all of that on historical grounds, on empirical grounds, on theoretical grounds, and says um, that story is not, is not accurate. And yet it remains as the dominant explanation and premise for the way we do economics to this day, including some radical traditions, um, including some traditions that are anti-capitalist, who still nonetheless assume that this is true. And MMT's story of money is different. Yeah, that story you just told, it's very intuitive. Uh, you know, I feel like I can imagine it happening historically. <laughs> So what right. does what's the alternative that MMT suggests about where money and economics comes from, and what would we do What would we do different if we took the new story seriously? Exactly right. So MMT's story ultimately affirms that from the very beginning of human civilization, we've always had governance structures. It wasn't just trade. Trade played a role, but it was never the central aspect of of societies. In fact. We've always had some kind of arrangement of authority, of rules, of governance, uh, whether that be, you know, a shaman or some kind of, you know, religious order or, you know, today representative republics in democracies, etc. Um, this could take the form of a very authoritarian system or this could take much more democratic forms as well. But the point is that it's never been barter that has been the central part of this, but rather the way that societies organize authority and institutions. And so money um, is not so much this extension of trade, but rather a way to keep an account of debts and obligations um, organized in a society that essentially say, look, we all got to produce the, and mobilize the resources that we need. And in order to do so, once you get to a certain size, you can't do that just by uh, oral communication anymore. So um, the, the modern in modern monetary theory is not speaking to the last hundred years or anything like that. It's speaking to about 5,000 years ago when writing started to play a very important role in human civilization. And, and one of that key roles of writing and some of the earliest forms of writing that we have is accounting systems, basically lawyers and accountants keeping track of debts. And so um, the, the authority, the stakeholder in, in societies decides in order to mobilize resources, we're going to give people a token or an IOU. And we're also gonna institute some sort of obligation um, in the form of 
some form of tax system and some form of legal system. Meaning at a certain time, you have to pay back some of these tokens and uh, we will accept that payment for not only taxes and, and you know even primitive forms of taxes of taxation, but also contract resolutions, you know, res- conflict resolutions, uh, fees and fines. All of these things will be accepted only in the unit of account that this authority that designates as the po- political body's unit of accounts. So today in the United States, we have the dollar. Um, and it's no, it's no coincidence that many currencies have the name of some kind of measurement, like a weight, the pound, the peso, uh, et cetera, because this was very similar to the development of like an inch or a meter, you know, units of measurement. Um, so this is very different in that it's not saying that there's an actual piece of, of value found in gold or found in some solid thing that represents value. Rather, this is the way that societies are organizing debts and obligations through IOUs, through tokens. So they issue this token, they have this tax system and a legal system to accept the token and payment back. And that is what organizes coordination and production. So if we fast forward today, this is very important because it turns upside down the theory that Governments that have their own currency, that issue a currency, have to collect it from revenue first. This flips that upside down and saying, actually, all currencies have to be spent into existence first. In the same way, uh, you know, a stadium that is hosting a a football game has to issue out points first. In the same way, uh, some uh, airline will issue out frequent flyer miles first. They don't have to collect them. They issue them out and then they can decide to move them around depending on, you know, whatever institutions they have. And so that flips a lot of what we know and expect and assume about money upside down. So money doesn't money no longer is this finite thing, literal thing, kind of like a chit of gold or something who gets its value from scarcity or from uh, its metal or worth in that sense, right? This is very common to kind of the libertarian perspective on things. And money actually becomes a public utility, uh, a public utility that organizes and arranges um, an economy uh, itself. And uh, it's, its quote unquote value comes from the legal system, it comes from the tax system. And um, um, it, it, you know, it's, uh, People often conflate the value of money with prices and, it, and, and the stability of, of a price system, uh, you know, depends on um, maintaining uh, inflation from getting out of control. And that is the principal uh, evaluative, you know, benchmark for MMTers is to think about, you know, what is inflation and when does it become a problem as opposed to these budget constraints where governments constantly define the money and deficits are inherently bad, and then that, you know countries are going to go bankrupt in their own money. Uh, we push that all aside and say, no, no, no. The real problem here is thinking about inflation, and inflation is not something that just occurs because money is issued out of like some natural law, but rather it's based on resources. It's based on what's available. It's based on going beyond uh, the productive capacity of a country. It's based on power. It's based on who has the power to set prices uh, at certain levels, right? Um, and oftentimes, it, it, hyperinflation in history has been a product of war, 
has been a product of colonization, has been a product of genocide, events in history that totally just destroy and dismantle a country's ability to take care of itself leads to instability and crisis. So this is a very different evaluation, a very different analysis than what we're used to. So that's kind of the, the, the gist. It's, I mean, it's a very exciting idea, but it also makes me very anxious. You know, there's a part of me that has that libertarian streak that wonders if we're already too abstract. I don't like debt. I would like money to be a positive value like gold. It sort of makes sense to me as an archaic human being, right? I, I think, okay, there may be some things I don't understand about inflation, but, you know, this sounds kind of risky that we would not be as worried about the inflationary dynamics that we've previously been concerned about. So I feel that side of it. But clearly, we've all seen governments who claim to be really worried about inflation suddenly do a whole bunch of spending and it's no problem. Yeah. So there's, a, right. there's a weird, uh, uh, you get mixed messages in terms of what we're allowed to spend on and not spend on. So I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to hear some reason why we actually do have a lot of money to spend on a lot of socially progressive things. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's that's really key here. I mean, I would argue that MMTers are actually the most concerned about inflation and the most serious about studying it from, you know, a interdisciplinary and integral perspective, right? We, we've even heard from people that have worked at the Federal Reserve and other American institutions kind of say, we don't know what inflation is. We actually don't, we have no idea. Uh, and this is very common in, in the orthodoxy. Everybody's worried about inflation. Nobody knows what it means. Uh, so we, 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 are, um, we are concerned with what actually inflation is. And this is why you know, we've offered analyses of uh, countries that have experienced inflation that are grounded in politics. Um, it's, it's grounded in these, these events. For example, World War I completely wiped out Germany's uh, productive capacity. France and other allies issued debts to Germany, not in German currency, but in French currency. They took over and they appropriated many uh, parts of the German economy. And, um, and, and so, you know, they were in a situation where they couldn't produce for themselves. So, of course, when you, when you spend money and you issue money in a situation like that, well, you have people wanting to buy things, but the things don't exist and you can't produce them fast enough. So of course, prices are gonna go up and be very unstable in that situation, right? Um, and interestingly enough, and, and in a way very sadly and tragically, uh, when the Nazis came to power, they applied many of these principles of spending a lot of money to build an empire uh, and to you know, develop this fascist society based on this knowledge that you know, if you invest, um, it's not a problem of where you're going to get the money. It's what it's what you're going to what you invest in and how that generates some kind of value for whatever you know politics you may have. Currently in the United States, um, we never ask questions about where we're going to get the money to pay for war or, or many kind of these imperial projects that that we continue to have. And then we saw it uh, during the COVID crisis, where when we needed to issue relief very, very rapidly to stop the American economy from hemorrhaging and allow people to quarantine. There was no question about where to find the money from because we have that capacity. And so through, you know, through MMT, we understand it's never about getting the money. The government always has that capacity and it could never by definition go bankrupt in its own currency. Uh, it's about productive, 
ability, resources, what's available? Do we have people available to work? Do we have the factories? Do we have the machines? Do we have the technology? That's, that's what matters. And then equally, MMT brings attention to the other side of inflation, which is unemployment and, and, and uh, the real deficits that matter, I would argue, deficits in sustainability, deficits in healthcare, deficits in well-being, deficits in you know, food and, and, and all of these forms of depravity that historically marginalized people and communities have had to struggle with uh, most of their lives. So, you know, there are many instances where all the elites and the experts are worried about inflation. Well, you know, half the country's in poverty or unemployed and starving, and that's not really seen as, as big of a problem. Um, so there's a lot of reasons for that as well. And people feel a visceral kind of uneasiness about this because money politics is deeply internalized into conventional thinking. Uh, an example of this would be taxpayer money. Most of our political debates are organized around fear of, uh, of or, or at least around the framing that whatever the government is going to do, it needs to tax it from someone first. And so you have middle class people in particular, uh, you know, tend to be a bit more privileged, historically more privileged, et cetera, feel that, oh, they're going to take money, my hard earned money. They're going to take it from me and they're going to give it to these other folks. And that has historically, you know, been able to reinforce tensions and conflicts in American society around class, around race, around gender, all these sort of things where certain people are viewed as less deserving than others because you know, it's our taxpayer money that's paying for everybody else, right? And, and MMT flips that around and says, you don't need to depend on anybody's taxes to pay for things. You know, taxes has, have their other purposes and, and they are important. Uh, and progressive MMTers absolutely want to tax the super rich, but it's because they've developed a monopoly and an oligopoly on society. They've bought governments, they have control over markets, you know, this is, this is deeply unfair, unhealthy, unjust, toxic, et cetera. But it's not because we need their money. It's not because in order to give health care to, to everybody, we need to ask permission or get taxes from the, the super rich. Um, in, in a lot of ways, MMT allows progressive politics to make elites or the ultra wealthy outdated. It allows for Wall Street in a lot of ways to become you know, it can exist, but if it, if it commits fraud, like happened before the 2008 financial crisis and acts in irresponsible ways and crashes, we don't need, okay, you can crash because the rest of the economy doesn't depend on you anymore. Intellectually, I can see that there's a big difference between the way a household economy is run and the way Correct. an economy is run when you can actually print the money. Yes. But em emotionally... Uh, my experience is of household economies, so I tend to naturally project that onto the federal stage. Right. Um, if we were going to implement this, if we were going to make a change, say, in the United States and bring in modern monetary theory, what would that consist of? What would we actually do differently? Excellent question. Um, yeah, I really resonate with this idea that, you know, viscerally we feel that a government is, it does exactly what we have to do, which is, you know, make sure that we don't spend more than we take in. And that sense that we should be fiscally responsible in our families and whatnot. Right. And the media certainly helps reinforce that by constantly comparing 
uh, a currency issuer like the U.S. government to a household as well. So in, in one sense, this, it's very important that we continue to develop systemic thinking that, that can kind of build. And I, and I think this kind of aligns with uh, much of the work of, of integral and systems thinking and, and the four quadrant system to understand that, you know, we, we can have concerns over our you know, place in a household or in a community. However, there are these layers of systems that, that hold this together in different ways. Uh, so to answer your question your, uh, directly, it, it would mean evaluating the process of policymaking differently. Uh, as one example, currently the CBO and the OMB give these projections to people in Congress that say the deficit is going to be X amount and the national debt is going to be X amount. And then we worry about it and that gets communicated and people debate about that. We would be saying that we need to change that evaluation to saying this is the state of the economy. This is these are our inflation projections. This is what this these industries are looking like and provide us that information. And that would be the, the, the one of the central guide and guiding pieces of policymaking. It would also it, uh, mean administering what's called offsets or um, automatic stabilizers. That's the key word, automatic stabilizers, which mean if something happens, the economy immediately responds with either taking money out or, or issuing money or some other kind of policy. Uh, an example of an automatic stabilizer would be a job guarantee, for example, something that MMTers advocate for, um, that at, the, at, at local and regional levels, projects are proposed in the community to offer work financed federally by the government that does some kind of environmental community or social good. And if you cannot get a job in the private sector or somewhere else, you know, depending on the unemployment level, which again, communities that have been historically marginalized have significantly higher levels of unemployment. So if you cannot get a job, if you are unemployed, you have the right to receive a job from, the, from this program. This is an automatic stabilizer because in instances of a recession or in shocks to the economy where people start to get laid off, where things start to crumble, typically this accelerates and gets worse and worse and worse. And the more people get laid off, the less money they have to spend in the economy, the less money is being, the less demand in the economy, the more businesses suffer and the whole system implodes. And that was a depression. Uh, and that's where we would have gone in during the Great Recession had not people intervened with a lot of stimulus. Um, so this, this is an automatic stabilizer because as people get laid off, it can take on jobs and it can give people uh, work at a living wage to do important things in the community. Um, during the COVID crisis, we could have had an emergency response uh, team of people, you know, making sure, uh, you know, uh, people, people were getting their needs met, making sure we, we were keeping sanitized across cities, maybe building things in cities that would have made the um, uh, response to the COVID crisis more effective, all kinds of things. And so that's the, an example of an automatic stabilizer. And when the economy starts to heal again and businesses and other in, uh, enterprises need to hire, they, the job guarantee program shrinks as people can go back into uh, other places. So that's an example of an automatic stabilizer. There could be many others that we can think of that get instituted in order to respond to potential problems. So though that's another way that an MMT framework would influence the economy. Uh, it would mean the expansion of certain kind of rights, economic rights. Fr uh, Franklin Roosevelt had 
a very famous uh, second bill of rights or economic bill of rights, the, you know, the right to uh, a job, the right to health care, et cetera, uh, we, we sh- may very well institute those. That in order for a society to thrive today, um, we need access to certain goods as, as a human right and to not go deeply into private and personal debt in order to achieve these things. Um, and that it's good for everybody when these rights exist. So that may be another uh, example of things that, that could be expanded. It would, rate, it would surely make the debate around the, a Green New Deal and the massive transformation of our energy system that we need. Uh, given what they're telling, what climate scientists are telling us, it would make it far more effective when we understand MMT, that we don't have to have these debates about finding the money. Much of the pushback against the Green New Deal is based on arbitrary notions of cost that make no sense to a federal government. And we could start focusing on exactly how many solar panels we need to build or you know, whatever that may be. What will it take to, to electrify everything? What will it take to create an energy grid? Do we have the workers for it? And, and have those difficult conversations about industry, about building that sustainable economy. Uh, and if in theory, any of these situations would take us to the point where we're like at full capacity, which is something that started to happen during World War II, which, you know, again, to get out of the Great Depression and to mobilize for World War II, we, we didn't do that by worrying about where were we were going to find the money. I mean, the New Deal and that World War II mobilization, boom, it went all in. So in theory, if we were to hit max capacity in the U.S. economy, we could start having uh, serious conversations about uh, how much bank credit we allow to happen and for what, you know, are we allowing a bunch of unnecessary golf courses to be built when we're in the middle of a climate crisis, things like that, because the banking system, the private banking system also issues credit as a form of money issuance. You know, the public through charters and licenses and a regulatory framework gives private banks the capacity to lend. And when they lend, it's as if they're issuing their US dollars as well. Uh, They don't have a vault with the money that they're using to lend out. They are actually lending similar to how a a government can lend as well or can issue money as well. So those those, those are some examples. In theory, it all sounds very attractive. Uh, But, uh, you know, famously, the Chinese government, you know, tested capitalism in a few regions. People like Nassim Taleb are very concerned about... uh, not launching into things that could have huge unexpected side effects and haven't been tested by time. So are there ways to implement this in local zones, in safe to fail experiments to see if we actually understand it or not? I would say that that's the wrong way to think about the world right now. We don't, we don't need, I mean, you know, we're, we're in a series of perpetual crises happening and Doing small things is not going to transform humanity or move us to a next phase in, in, in our evolution or in the things that need to get done. And when, you know, I would argue that the most important transformations in, the, in, the, in modern history of the world happened in the middle of the 20th century when many very, very important reforms came about. I mean, we have weekends and some of these things we take for granted because of those reforms that happened and the huge investments in 
hospitals, bridges, infrastructure, universities, all of these things that, although not perfect, also reduce the level of inequality between you know, Black Americans and white Americans that were facing Jim Crow, as, an, as another example. So these things happen at a large scale. And I think we also need to be doing large scale actions as well now. Obviously, we need to do the best kind of analysis to plan for what may be consequences, but there, you know, there's already a lot of consequences, right? I mean, when you got Flint, Michigan, having poisoned water, lead in their water because of budget concerns, and, and you have local government making decisions to save money, but switch over the community's use of water to lead pipes, pipes with lead in them, you know, that's a tragedy. Those are consequences. When we have superstorms that are devastating various communities and specifically impacting those that have already been harmed in this society, you know, those are consequences too. So I think we're already experiencing very significant consequences. So we can say that we've already got a bunch of problematic circumstances and we've already seen a number of things historically where something like this using the similar principles has been tested. Correct. Uh, But are there, right. Are there people running this system in the world? Are there uh, zones where people have actually tried out this? Are there any countries doing it? Any regions? Yeah. So it's important to remember that, MMT is, is a framework for analysis and not really a thing that you do. Um, so that's one thing. But okay. are there dimensions of MMT policy proposals that have been put into action? And, and that's, that, that's true. So one example is in Japan, they have a much higher deficit to GDP ratio uh, than, than the United States. And they've been in, in a steady growth, like a low growth economy for a while as well. And yet... They have higher quality of life than we do. They're not in, in a crisis. They um, have basically proven incorrect many of the assumptions about deficits uh, that conventional economists have uh, in being able to run their economy like that. They also, uh, another you know thing we might get into is what actually the national debt is. A lot of people think it's the same as the deficit. So I mean, maybe I can quickly explain that, that difference yeah, for your audience. Too. Yeah. So, you know, the the deficit essentially is just the money the government has spent that has not been collected back in taxes. That difference. If the government spends 10, collects seven, the deficit is three. When you understand the MMT framework, you then uh, know that a government's deficit is a private economy surplus and vice versa. If the government would ever have a surplus, it'd be running a deficit in the private economy, because that's what kind of that process of issuing does, right? Uh, Someone's debt is somebody else's asset. Someone's deficit is somebody else's asset. So if if the government's deficit is is, uh, three out of 10, that means that the private economy uh, has a surplus of of seven. What about this idea that people have that, like, if in a year we spend more money than we took in, that we borrow it from the Chinese and we'll have to pay it back to them at some point. <laughs> right. That's, that, that's key. So, so now that we, we start going into this idea of the debt and the way that the U S government and policy has been traditionally set is that when the government runs a deficit, meaning when more is being spent in that is being taken back, which as I mentioned, that's actually good for the economy because that is a surplus for the economy. 
Um, when that happens, the government uses this thing called monetary policy, which is basically trying to manage interest rates. They want to keep interest rates at a certain level. That's how they have decided and we've decided for, for many years to keep the, the, uh, the economy stable. And so they do this by issuing these things called treasury securities to the financial system. And a treasury security is essentially just a different form of money. Uh, if you have a dollar, it's something you can go and you can spend right away. A treasury security is a savings instrument. So when we spend a deficit into the economy, that money is going to go into banks because that's where most people are going to hold them. So bank reserves are going to go up. So the government wants those reserves to, to be taken out and swapped for treasury securities. So it sells these treasury securities and then many banks have treasury securities. And when you have a treasury security, that means that you basically have a savings account with the federal reserve, just like you could have a savings account with bank of America or, or something like that. And, and that's the debt. The debt is one big savings account in the form of these treasury securities that signify the net savings of dollars in the world. So when China imports, or I should say when they export and we import, uh, the, the goods that they produce, we buy them in dollars. They get those dollars and they deposit those dollars in their banks and in their central bank. And then they say, well, what are we going to do with a bunch of dollars? Well, they would rather buy U.S. treasuries and keep them in a savings account because you get some interest in a savings account. And the U.S. government pays that interest when those treasuries mature. And that's it. That's, that's the whole extent of it. So it's been ideology. It has been, you know, a lot of misinformation and propaganda that says that this is an act of borrowing. It's actually not an act of borrowing. It's an act of monetary policy to keep interest rates where the government wants them. It's unnecessary. We don't need to do this to spend. So bringing up Japan again, Japan sets their interest rates at zero and it keeps them there and does policy in another way. Uh, we can do that too. We can do something kind of cool that uh, some colleagues of mine have been, have been advocating for called minting the coin. And uh, it, 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 minting the coin essentially finds a, a part of U.S. law in the Constitution that says you can tell the U.S. mint to mint a coin of whatever value you want. So we can tell the U.S. mint to mint a trillion dollar coin, you know, tomorrow if we wanted to. And with that trillion dollar coin, the value of that trillion dollar coin goes into the treasury's deposit and that's it. We have a trillion dollars. We can do that. We, that, that way we can get around this complicated process of issuing these treasury securities and whatnot and everybody getting worried about the national debt. <laughs> so that's something we can do. We can do as well. That is kind of cool. Minting the coin. Hashtag mint the coin. It's very intriguing. Uh, who are some of the major advocates for this and who are some of the major critics? So um, I would say Stephanie Kelton. She's got a wonderful New York Times bestselling book called The Deficit Myth, which explains everything I've been talking about in a very accessible way. I recommend everybody read this book. Another author is Pavlina Cherniva. Uh, she's got a book on the job guarantee, uh, which is a big part of MMT as well. I uh, recommend reading that book too. There is an uh, an institute called the Global Institute for Sustainable Prosperity, 
uh, that is run by MMTers, and they do a lot of work on MMT applied to international perspectives as well, which is very important. I do work in advocacy and advising here in the United States, but also for countries in Latin America using an MMT framework as well. Uh, the Modern Money Network is an important organization doing this work. And critics, I mean, you know, everybody from Paul Krugman uh, and kind of that liberal orthodoxy to the libertarians, of course, or the Austrian economists who have a very different vision of the world. And then some on the Marxist left as well, because they're very committed to the labor theory of value and, and, and um, believing that money by definition is this extension of labor, as opposed to what we're saying that is, it's a, it's a product of governance. Which criticism do you hear that you think is the most serious or the most challenging? Um, I would say the most challenging is what to, is the politics of winning some of these policies and maintaining them, especially at an international level. The, the, or the politics that, you know, perhaps elites will just shut any of these policies down if we try to use MMT. I think that might have the most cogent argument to it, perhaps. But yeah, besides that, I mean, I think there's just overwhelming evidence that the, 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 the assumptions that are driving MMT's understanding of money, of finance, of monetary systems is, is significantly better than what, what orthodox economists and, and, uh, and libertarians are, are saying, mainly because of how interdisciplinary inter, uh, it is and bringing insights from different uh, traditions and perspectives. It is, it's tough to imagine this being implemented because on the one hand, you've got all the people who are super benefiting from the current economic situation. Correct. And on the other hand, you have maybe the great majority of people who are instinctively adapted to a, a different set of assumptions about the economy. Like I do some you know, work in thinking around more complex collective decision-making protocols, but everybody, whether it's instinctively derived or just a habit from youth, just sort of a show of hands, simple majority voting, we're all super used to that, right? It makes a lot of sense. Everybody knows that it's simple to grasp. We've been practicing it since we were kids to try to get somebody to do ranked choice or, you know, averaged gradients or things like that. It just seems weird to them. And so there's a whole bunch of reluctance from the instincts of average people, as well as a whole bunch of resistance from economic super predators. How could you possibly overcome that? Yeah, it's, uh, it's difficult. And that really speaks to the work of movement building of education, of being with communities. Sometimes I will say this, people who were not trained in economics, who are not experts, have a much easier time intuitively understanding this than your typical economics person, right? A lot, and it's very common to see online, for example, when certain policies are proposed or progressive policies, uh, people will say, well, you know, all you need to do is take an economics 101 class to see that this is complete nonsense, right? And, and you know, my response is always, well, maybe like all the insights about economics aren't in a 101 class, one, and two, maybe economics 101 is, is, 
is deeply flawed because, uh, you know, if you follow the history of economic thought, you, you know how uh, there has never been consensus about economic ideas. And, um, and what's very popular now is um, very isolated, very siloed, and not well respected by a lot of other academics or researchers in other areas. So yes, difficult work, economic predators uh, will, will certainly not want these changes to happen. Uh, and that's where politics comes in. That's where organizing comes in. That's where consciousness raising comes in and, uh, and, and winning smaller victories and building upon those. What do you think consciousness raising consists of other than sort of just educating people about how this might work? Like, are there ethical, emotional, developmental dimensions to what would make people ready for a change like this? What, Certainly. What, what made uh, you ready for it? Well, I, I think that I'm just, I, I was just not uh, content and satisfied with, with the way we think a world can only function on competition, on individualism, on seeking massive obscene, uh, you know, profits and um, not, not valuing other aspects of what we can achieve uh, together. And um, I think that I've never been happy with things like the taxpayer money uh, trope, where we think it's our taxes that are paying for many of these initiatives that we want. So part of the consciousness raising is to think more systemically, to um, understand a lot of MMTers that are progressive are also very intersectional. And that means understanding how various institutions that shape the world, that shape reality, from the way family systems have been shaped to schools, Many of these institutions have shaped our different, the media have shaped our different identities and the way that we enter into the world, the way that we can participate in the world, the rules that shape how people are valued and communities are valued in different ways uh, and what opportunities, you know, where the boundaries are to, to, for social engagement. Uh, being aware of those, being aware of those, being aware of like the things that have cultivated who we are, um, and then being able to locate that within the bigger picture of the society we have and the possible changes we want to, to that society uh, on ethical dimensions. That's the kind of work that will raise consciousness uh, and to be able to understand that in terms of the economy, it's never a matter of not being able to afford things. We can always afford it. The question is like, how do we want to use our resources and for what purposes? And I think that that is a much more deep fundamental question about who we want to be, what we think is the right thing to do, how we want to coexist. And it's this idea that, that money is scarce that atomizes us, that that keeps most people feeling and operating under a scarcity mindset that either you can make a lot of money and be very successful or you're screwed and you, you're going to have to like just accept your, your state and your, you know, oftentimes your impoverishment that is, that is maintained by this idea that money is scarce, that, that in order it's a zero sum mentality that in order to create 
opportunities or create rights for others that have to, it have to be taken from me first. Uh, so that's a level of deep emotional consciousness raising that I think is, is very important. Um, and, and although we, you know, we can all recognize that re resources are scarce, the human condition and the ability to, to use thought, to use art, the, the whole field of aesthetic power that we have is a field of creativity. So resources may be scarce, but resources can also be reproduced. And resources can also be used and engaged with in a multiplicity of different ways. The quality, the qualitative dimension to how, for example, housing, how we build homes, how we live, how we coexist, that is not just a matter of like how much steel exists, right? So we can think about, oh, you know, we, we might have these limits. We may need to produce more, but we can also think about maybe we can change the way we produce things. Maybe we can change the way we live, the way we, we co-occupy homes, all these kinds of questions. And so, you know, the field of possibility is much wider when you understand that money, like law, like governance, is this qualitative governance, uh, uh, human dimension that has aspects of, of affect, of emotion, of creativity, and aesthetics. I read that you um, had a philosophical background in existentialism, and I'm curious yeah. if you see that as parallel to your interest in these deep existential questions about social organization, economics, basic assumptions about how society is run. Do those come out of the same kind of feeling of interest for you? Absolutely. I mean, and one of the big questions that I have kind of searched in philosophy and in existentialism is this a, a supposed binary between collective good versus individual liberty. And, you know, part of my work is wanting to transcend or overcome that seeming opposition where, where we understand the structure of the collective sets, sets the opportunities for, for individuals. And so how do we, how do we create conditions of, of conditions that allow for thriving, for flourishing, for respect, dignity, rights, et cetera, for all, yet also allow the, the, the space for variation, differentiation, a freedom of, of existence in a multiplicity of ways, right? Without one group or one person's freedom, you know, suppressing or oppressing others, which is what we have now in a lot of ways. That's, that's what's important to me there. And so I think these approaches where, you know, I think MMT falls within a much bigger work in social theory begins to, I think, give us the tools to, to overcome that binary. I've, I've argued a lot that people like Kierkegaard and Nietzsche are part of the history of the emergence of integrative thinking to a much larger degree than most of the integral community usually recognizes. It makes me curious about who are your philosophical heroes? Which, which thinkers do you go back to? That's, a, oh, that's such a great question. I mean, I, I've certainly had such an evolution in, in, uh, in where I get my thoughts. So for a large part of my life, you know, Nietzsche and Sartre and Camus were deeply, deeply influential. Uh, for another time in my life, you know, the Marxist tradition, especially kind of post-Marxist, like the Frankfurt School, critical theorists, and uh, post some, some post-structuralists were deeply influential. And, um, and you know, like I'm at, I'm at this 
stage in my life where I recognize the importance all these figures have had, but, uh, but there's not like one that remains a hero anymore, really. Maybe that's because of uh, some of the excitement in the research that I'm doing with colleagues where we feel like we're entering into this new stage right. of, of, of thought development and, um, you know, our heroes and influences remain there in the background. But a lot of, you know, interestingly enough, a lot of the work I've been doing recently has been kind of challenging and critiquing heroes I've had nice. in the past through, through some of the new insights I've been getting. So that's been an interesting experience as well. Well, along that line, um, like what would you say is from your point of view, like Marx's major viable contribution and also where do you think he was misled or misleading or went astray? Love, love that question. I think the, you know, the, the most important contributions was to think about society, think about uh, an economy as, as producing value socially not just individuals doing things, but rather there's, there's a system in place. Um, and thinking about the way so many workers or people as a class um, work day in and day out, but are not receiving the benefits for the amount of work that they put in. I think that's very important as well. Now, where did he go wrong? Well, I think he attempted to create a hard science based on this analysis uh, through historical materialism, which I think uh, is is reductive and very economistic in a lot of ways, and it misses out and and kind of crowds out other very important aspects of us what a social system is. I think that the binary class struggle is too simple, too simplistic, and I think that that all comes back to this kind of same error that he made because he's a, a thinker of kind of the classical era, classical modern era. I mean, he got a lot of his inspiration from Adam Smith and, and David Ricardo. Um, he, he, he tried to build a hard science of a material world. And, uh, and that leads to a lot of, a lot of blind spots. Um, and when it comes to money, you know, in, in throughout the three capitals of volume, uh, three volumes of capital, his theory of money is, is also this idea that it's this extension of material immediate relations kind of coming out and, and, and it's, you know, it's bad. It's, uh, it's alienating society. Uh, and therefore many Marxists conclude that we need to get rid of money altogether ultimately. And I think that that's a mistaken perspective. That's, that's ignoring the role of the collective uh, from a governance perspective that it's not just, our, our immediate social relations that matter. Do you keep an eye on Colombian politics? And if so, what's your impression of where they're at at the moment? Very much so. I am uh, advising some senators at the moment in developing one, an alternative economic narrative to the, to the consensus, to the conventional one on developing a jobs program, a public employment program. Um, I think Colombia has faced for many decades a radicalization towards a far right-wing uh, government, very reminiscent of Pinochet. And, um, you know, the polls look like we may have our very first 
left-wing or progressive candidate or president in history. I think that that nonetheless is, is going to face a lot of, lot of challenges. But the Colombian people have faced a lot of trauma, a lot of issues, but are you know, very resilient, very creative, and they want, they want to secure peace. They increasingly want to secure some kind of justice. And so I'm, I'm definitely committed to contributing to that to that unfolding story. Do you think there's a possibility for um, Central and South America to sort of, let's say, get its act together and lead the world in terms of mobilizing some sort of progressive or quasi-socialistic agenda? Because there have been a lot of countries in that region that have tried to make moves like that. It hasn't always worked. Sometimes it's been you know, at the barrel of a gun. Sometimes it's been yeah. suppressive of individual freedom and liberty. Sometimes yeah. it's looked pretty interesting. And sometimes yes. we've sabotaged it from the outside. But, it's, right. you know, it, but it would be interesting. You know, um, what, what do you think the future prospects are for below North America? <laughs> yeah, I think it's critical for a left to move beyond the fossil fuel type leftist agendas. That is one of the things that got Venezuela very much in trouble and um, it's unsustainable and it leads to many of these problems with corruption uh, to maintain a left agenda or any political agenda based on, you know, fossil fuel investments or um, surplus and, and, and wealth from pegging your fiscal capacity to the state of the fossil fuel economy. A lot of problems with that. We need to overcome that. Secondly, I think that the growing social movements in Latin America around feminism and women's rights, around indigenous rights, Afro-Latin American rights, Afro-Colombian, et cetera, that we have experienced throughout the 20th century through the civil rights movements and still today are key because they have not had the, the, the level of visibility and expansive influence as they're starting to now. And that is very, very important to pushing back against kind of the typical strongman dead end that some countries get into that is a direct legacy of, of colonization, of that kind of culture. You know, Latin American countries got their independence like 100 years after the U.S. essentially and, and, and never fully, you know, have had the kind of uh, agency that the most powerful superpowers have. So that's going to be very important as well. Is, is it possible? I mean, yeah, I don't want to ever discount anything as being impossible. I think we should continue to push uh, for, you know, egalitarian movements across Latin America in terms of, in terms of resources, in terms of culture, there is tremendous potential in Latin America to create a kind of movement for the future. And I think a lot, many people would argue that, that it is necessary for a region like Latin America to be to provide the kind of leadership that a a, a post capitalist or a a more enlightened uh, humanity needs. Do you say Latino or do you say Latinx? I can say both. I, I often say Latino just because I'm more used to it. But I, I uh, there are certain contexts where where I say Latinx, and I'm certainly cool with with people using that. That term, it's used a lot more in Latin America than people think. 
uh, you know, because I've seen a lot of a lot of criticism say that that uh, Americans invented it here and that it has nothing to do with with um, <laughs> with people that speak Spanish. But in social movements in Latin America, it is absolutely used. And Spanish is a very iterative, unfolding language. You know, um, no country in Latin America speaks exactly the same Spanish with the same vocabulary. Spanish has evolved tremendously over the years. So I see absolutely no problem with using a term that uh, is, is more inclusive to, uh, you know, the, the, the emphasis on more expansive uh, gender identities. Uh, others use the term Latin with an E at the end as being more grammatically correct and more inclusive as well. So yeah, there's, there's different circumstances where I'll use either one of those. It intrigues me, that, you know, the discussion around it. And I'm sure you're right that North Americans uh, have a maybe solipsistic view that North Americans are the ones creating this phrasing. But um, there is kind of a tension between the attempt to create um, new cultural artifacts that are more inclusive and progressive versus the attempt to relate to the conservative spirit of many large populations. Uh, like uh, we have this notion maybe that there's an integral post-postmodern or a meta-modern move trying to go on culturally and economically and globally. But a lot of the people who support the economic and structural changes also support a lot of cultural issues that are very off-putting to many other more conservative populations. You know, is there, is there a danger of the progressive movement being too associated with both cultural change and economic structural change in a way that doesn't allow them to integrate and harness uh, large population groups that really want economic change, but are not emotionally ready to affirm the cultural and stylistic changes? Good question. So just, you know, politically off the bat, I, I certainly identify in a line with movements to both transform cultural structures and economic structures. And I'm very, very reluctant and hesitant to, to, to be part of the quote, anti-woke left. I get very uncomfortable with what I see becoming new alliances around economic leftists and kind of the, the, the alt-right fascist right. So with that said, uh, I certainly am for thinking about the most strategic or effective ways to help integrate cultural transformation in communities that have um, not embodied or internalized certain attitudes yet. With that said, I think that it's important to note that social conservatism is not something that is kind of rooted in people imminently and then just an expression of, you know, an inherent conservatism, but rather the product of history and powerful institutions who are dictating, you know, certain moral standards and hierarchies. In Latin America, as in the United States, you know, very right-wing reactionary religious institutions have played a very strong political role 
in crafting a certain kind of moral order uh, and a certain kind of gender order. And I think that it is in the work through economic progressive policy and also media policy, you know, progressive media policy, uh, organizing, movement building, et cetera, that we can create spaces and opportunities for, um, uh, for people to realize that it is not a threat to be more culturally expansive and that you know they have alternatives to to holding on um to, to social conservatism and i so i also think that new generations are are pushing their parents generation on this as well around the world um because because i think that new generations are kind of understanding the significant limits and the trauma that social conservatism brings to those that fall outside of very strict and narrow standards of what is uh, acceptable, accepted and normal. A lot of our um, conventional political designations are as misleading as they are useful. So in the integral political space or in developmental politics, there's often this, um, desire to tease apart the difference between traditional values and the idea that there's maybe a left-right polarization at every cultural stage. So that sometimes when we say the right, we might mean the right, the, the modern right or the postmodern right or the traditional right. And in conventional discourse, that gets conflated with people who have traditional values. But I think a similar problem exists on the left where there's a lot of ambiguity about definitions. You know, do you think the left is is a viable category? How do you see the difference between progressives and the center left, which is often critiqued as really being a kind of neoliberal status quo dressed up in representational clothing? Um, what's your take on on what the left means to you? We're getting into the deep questions now. <laughs> this, is, this is the good stuff. Um, wow. I, I think that there are, there are increasingly serious limits to the way we've understood left-right politics. Uh, and I say that as someone that is part of the left. Because we're, we, are, we are developing more in-depth and nuanced understandings of what, and debates about what power is, about um, who benefits and who doesn't from our societies, even on the left, that are, that are bringing attention to actions, assumptions by the left that uh, are reproducing problems that the left is allegedly trying to solve. And for me, I mean, just reducing our politics to these two directions that seem to be this, this linear thing uh, just kind of feels off at this point. Like really, like that's the best we can do. I mean, like, I, you know, I, I get it, you know, through the French revolution, some people sat on the left, some people sat on the right monarchism versus Republicans. Okay. But I think like we've really come a long way <laughs> since that too. You know, so, you know, I have affinity and solidarity with the left as a history, as a tradition, uh, you know, trying to accomplish certain things. But I'm also, you know, 
trying to be as aware and conscious of the limits that exist there too. Um, so, so there's that. I think that progressives are trying to occupy a place where they can be working within institutions in the dominant system that are necessary to bring about changes in law and, and in, in structures while also being able to connect and keep relationships with people working outside of the system or yeah, I guess the formal system, right? Cause it's all part of, part of different systems, uh, but working outside of electoral politics and elections and things like that. That's very difficult. It's easier said than done, but you know, I would say that that's what progressives are trying to accomplish. I tend to be of a strategy called you know, something like an all at once strategy you know, all at once organizing in workplaces, whether that's more labor unions and also improving labor unions and making them more democratic and less, you know, less corrupt in some instances, but certainly uh, expanding the labor movement in this country. But that also means better media. And, and that also means elections and who we vote for at the local level, at the state level, at the federal level, policy, uh, social movements at large, all at once, I think that that is very important uh, to do. Um, I think there are instances where, you know, people make mistakes or people can get sucked into the limits and the very narrow boundaries of the establishment, uh, particularly in kind of like this neoliberal hellhole that we're in. And that's that's part of the challenge that that we're in, right? And for me, this is why it's so key to not forget the role of theory the role of analysis and the role of ideas in, in, in trying to unpack and, and complicate or disrupt the assumptions that even the left carries with it sometimes. Because there is this tendency on the left right now to say that we've gone too abstract, we've gone, and, and, and the, the, what we should be doing is just mobilizing from, from the base. It's very Marxist. And workers will just will know what to do inherently if we just let them see that they're being exploited. And I have issue, I take a lot of issues with, with this approach, not because I don't think workers should be organizing, of course, or, or you know, housing uh, tenant organizations, what, what have you. Uh, but because I think that if we repress or deny the role of abstraction in, in governance, in meaning, in sense making, then the worst abstractions will take over because I don't think you could ever get rid of abstract. I think that's part of the human condition. That's why we have a consciousness. That's why we speak and we have language. Um, you know, we're not, we're not going to go back to some Edenic society where it's just pure sensuousness and, and materiality and, and no abstraction. That's ridiculous. So I think we need to be conscious of trying to build the most, you know, radically empowering, ethical abstract systems as we possibly can right and that that takes the form of law and that's why i'm into modern to bring it back to mmt that's why you know money under this uh this approach is a kind of governance abstraction as law is that uh that isn't like physical but it's organizing our relationships and and it, can, it has that physical impact how well do you think our education systems are doing in terms of producing people capable of the adequate level of abstraction to make these changes and have these insights? 
well, well, not, not well enough. And, uh, you know, it's, I mean, we, we're still, we're still funding education schools, public schools through local property taxes. And it, which is, I can't believe that it's 2021 and we're still doing this, right? If we think about a, a local, a local community, they're, they're not the issuer of the, of a, of the U.S. dollar. So they have to operate through some kind of revenue constraint as well. And that's very problematic for public schools, especially in areas where there's low property taxes because the areas are impoverished. We should be providing the kind of funding and support and resources, whether it's classroom sizes and, and others, to every community and school in the United States to reach certain kinds of social goals. We also need to see education is not just what happens in the classroom, but the way that, you know, different conditions at home and in the community are affecting a child's uh, and, and an adult's educational experience. We definitely need to broaden and, and transform and upgrade curriculum as we know it, learning as we know it, to be much more experiential, holistic, uh, to be less based on rote memorization and passing exams that are standardized. I think that is deeply outdated as well and does not uh, account for the many levels of intelligence and competency that human beings have. And many of those exams, including the IQ test, has, have historically been used to benefit the people who already have cultural advantages to begin with and then used to say that others are dumb inherently, are just inferior, right? Um, and there's obviously a lot of controversy with that now in, in the IQ test. So um, yes, we need to radically upgrade what education means, what learning means, um, how we, we pass this, this, uh, these systems on to young people and people that are growing. Um, and we need to provide the, the appropriate kind of support as a whole, as a society, uh, and that comes with public funding and, and, uh, and, and a serious conversation at the national level about what, it, what it's going to take to provide the best kind of education for everybody. There are clearly a lot of gross, dangerous, and worrying things about Donald Trump and what he represents. But um, what, if anything, did you like about him? What's the best thing about Trump? The best thing about Trump is that he mobilized a lot of us on the left and progressives to uh, not wait for the liberal and neoliberal establishment to get things done. I think we realize that if we, if we continue to do that, we're in trouble. And um, this sense of, you know, nobody else is going to do it, so we got to do it really came to, to us, um, you know, my friendship and yeah, my friendship with AOC before she became a Congresswoman kind of really crystallized uh, after that election where we felt like, and many others felt like we had to start to make history and, and take, even when it's scary, make bold decisions and make moves to uh, to become more influential in our in our communities and in the world, uh, because we couldn't wait anymore. So, in a large, in large part, that's because he he got elected. So that that's a good thing that came out of it. 
Do you think AOC has changed in the last few years? I mean, people don't necessarily have the same vibe about her as they had before. What do you think made her, first of all, really like engaging and attractive to people up front? But where do you think she's at right now? Uh, I think that she had a story that people connected with. I think she's a uh, brilliant communicator. I think she made policies simple and, and, and exciting. And I think she's just cool. Cool. She's sharp. She's cool. She's interesting. And that, that was very, very important. Um, I think uh, trying to govern within our current institutions is incredibly difficult. She's facing a lot of challenges in navigating that process. She's, you know, constantly being uh, harassed and attacked in various forms um, by people. I do think that there are shady influences trying to uh, develop anger towards AOC from quote unquote the left as well. Now, I think that there are a lot of like attempts to, to do that for, for some not so positive reasons. I don't always agree with everything she does or every, or the way that she does things. But I think overall, she has done a tremendous good and she continues to do so, especially given the circumstances and this, you know, the space she has to operate under. And, and now it's at a point where, you know, the honeymoon phase of, of, of a new elected official has kind of come and gone. And, you know, it's the, it's the continuous work of governance and of, of trying to build not only pass legislation, but build the coalitions to do so and make very tough choices. And, and that stuff is not easy. Uh, especially when you're a public figure and getting kind of attacked from all angles and things like that. So, yeah, that's what I mean. Just getting to peek inside of that world a little bit, you, you, you kind of like, holy shit, this is, this is no joke. <laughs> I'll tell you, every time I see Jamal Bowman say anything, I'm intrigued. I think there's a real intelligence here. Um, yeah. So I'm curious, you know, what's your take on up and coming progressive politicians? Who have you got your eye on aside from AOC? Who you think, oh, maybe this is part of the future transformation of American politics and the Democratic Party? Definitely uh, Jamal. I'm glad you brought him up. I think he's, he's very thoughtful. And uh, we've had some conversations uh, even about MMT. So definitely Jamal. I, I really like Rashida, Rashida's energy. Uh, I think she's, she's, she's fantastic. Um, who else is out there these days? Um, oh, I, Ayanna Presley has been, you know, she, she's in a, uh, in Massachusetts, which is kind of like a politically, uh, certain kind of has a certain kind of history to it. And, and she, I mean, she put forward the resolution for a job guarantee that we worked with her on. Um, so I think she's bringing some really interesting things to the table right now. And I, and I want to, I'm interested to see who this next batch of, uh, of progressives are. Uh, I know in New York, there's, there's uh, Rana, who's running for New York 12. And uh, there, there's some folks in Colorado as well who are preparing to launch. So, you know, we'll see. Yeah, I, I think like, I'm excited because the best of Bernie is, is it has the potential to be captured in a lot of diverse, differentiated uh, perspectives. 
that can mobilize a lot of different kinds of communities and but, but yet come together as part of one bold big agenda nice you know there's a kind of um there's a kind of argument among people who would say yes this uh abstract work and this economic work is all well and good, but we have to be directly challenging power and justice, racism, and things like that. And then there's a sort of counter argument, which says, of course, we have to handle all those things, but the way we handle them is by making these economic and social infrastructure changes, not necessarily by going after those things on their own. Right? Do you see that argument playing out? Do you have a side in that fight? Yeah. I mean, I think that infrastructure and institutions are the things that create racism in all these problems. Uh, it's not either or. So we do have to challenge power and racism and this sort of thing, but how do you actually do that? You, you have to look into the, the, the institutions that are reproducing it. Um, and that's why I think abstraction is so important, right? What, what, is it about, what is it about law? I mean, critical race theory, which is so uh, controversial right now is, uh, is something that exactly does that. It brings attention to the history of law and, and, and legal battles and legal decisions in perpetuating Jim Crow uh, and the problems that we still have today with racism. So see, figuring that out, uh, understanding the way the media reproduces these problems um, and understanding the way decisions in, in, in investment and in money and what gets determined uh, to be for profit, um, the way that um, in real estate, in banking, and finance, and other institutions, not only has that historically redlined or segregated the country, but also preys upon vulnerable people, you know, because it, it can potentially provide a lot of profit. Um, and so these things all come about through. Uh, the world of governance that has very important abstract aspects to it. Last question, maybe. Where are you at in terms of, um, you know, finding a spiritual life and a spiritual practice that works with your social values, your existentialism, you know, isn't necessarily baked into some kind of metaphysical system you can't get behind? Uh, where are you in that journey? What's your inner life like? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, I've had certain moments of uh, of transformation in my inner life, and I don't think I'll ever get to a point where I can say I have it all figured out or I know the truth about my stance on the spiritual and, and the, the metaphysical. You know, I, I, I'm certainly an advocate for the decriminalization of, of, of psychedelics and the development of the use of psychedelics responsibly and in um, therapeutic contexts to uh, treat things like depression, PTSD, and other mental health problems. Um, and I've had some transformative experiences with, with psychedelics in the spiritual world. Um, and I also advocate for meditation and mindfulness and those kinds of practices. Um, I caution against spiritual bypassing and, and, and acting as if these things are just going to solve everything and, and every, you know, everything only begins and ends inside of us. I don't think that's true. Um, but I think it is important to have this practice because it's, it's tough out there and we, we need to have a kind of emotional stability and uh, heal 
do the, do, you know, there's a lot of things that have to be done collectively and, and, and at a macro level for us to heal, but there are things we can do to heal also on a personal level. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I, I have my issues with, with Ken Wilber, but there are certain things I like about the, the growing up, um, I think it's, it's, it's a cleaning up. I forget sometimes. Yeah. Growing but, and cleaning, yeah. waking. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Waking. Right. Though I think that's useful. That's a useful pragmatic heuristic. Engaging in, in aspects, not just through therapy, although that may, that may be very helpful, but through um, getting to know ourselves and our valences as much as possible. And when our valences are coming from part, points of trauma or when they're coming from points of our, our, of the death drive or the drive to, to oppress and, and, and hurt others, which we all, we all have as well. Um, so that's important as well. I do think that we're all uh, connected into one thing that we could call being itself. Being is real, being create, there is something, not nothing. And uh, everything in being is analogical to everything else and analogical to being itself. And that has it very much informed my, my politics, my approach to economics, to MMT, to all these things, right? Because when you kind of see that there's this cascade of being uh, in different layers, in nested layers, then uh, at least for my economics and, and the way I think about that, you could see that uh, what we do at the macro affects the meso, affects the micro and vice versa. And we can craft this cascade in different ways. And to me, that's, that's world building. That's a beautiful place to end this. Um, it's been a very, for me, a very rich and pleasant discussion. Thanks very much, Andres. Thank you for having me. I apologize for the occasional uh, it, technological difficulties and internet, internet interruption, but I had a, had a wonderful time. I really appreciated your questions.